Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine. The latest. Today, as Ukraine attacks in the south with thousands of troops, western tanks and armoured vehicles, we bring you the latest updates from the front lines. And we speak to the researchers behind the Wall Evidence Project, an online archive of inscriptions the Russian military left during the occupation of Ukraine since February 2022. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. We need a military strategy for Ukraine to gain a decisive advantage on the battlefield, to win the war. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Thursday, the 27th of July. One year and 153 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today, I'm joined by our Brussels correspondent, Joe Barnes, and Russia correspondent, Natalia Vasilyeva. I started by asking Joe for the latest news from Ukraine. What we have is what appears to be, and we kind of alluded to it yesterday, a big push to the south of Orokiv, the Zaporizhia region town. So that town is held by Ukraine and has been one of the three main axes of the counteroffensive. But what we've seen, or what we think we're seeing, and usual caveat supply, the fog of war is really thick here. I've been peppering Ukrainian contacts all morning, and it is basically radio silence as they try and maintain their operational secrecy on this front. Americans seem to be a lot more chatty. So the New York Times reported last night that Ukraine had launched its main thrust of the counteroffensive in this southern region. And the attack from, as we understand it, is coming south of Orokiv and heading towards Robotny. So Robotny is one of the early lines of Russian defence on that Zaporizhia front. We think, um, and if we basically couple together reports from Russian sources, uh, Ukrainian sources and Western sources, that there has been some activity on the north and northeastern corner of Robotny, And what we could have seen is the first breach of a forward-placed defence by Ukraine, because there was some geolocated video footage that are placed. We don't know if they're disabled or abandoned, but a T-72 tank, a Soviet-era tank, and two American-made Bradley combat vehicles next to it. What we have seen before, and this is not immediately clear now, but... We have seen Ukrainian attempts to fight into Robotny before, but that has been a sort of a massive area for Russian minefields. And Ukraine has basically struggled to breach those minefields until now, apparently. But we, we still don't know the fog of war. But let's look at this offensive a little closer. So the Russian-held area south of Orokiv, which is about 60 miles away from the Sea of Azov, which is ultimately Ukraine's goal, is to really drive down to the Sea of Azov and split the Russian troops in Ukraine's south and eastern regions. So the um, US-based Institute for the Study of War, the think tank, said Ukraine appeared broken for its first pre-prepared defences just south of Orokiv in a push for Robotny. This is where things slightly get trickier because we're now relying on Russian sources. So Vladimir Rogov, who is the Moscow-appointed head of Zaporizhia, so the occupied area where Russia has claimed to have sort of annexed, said that Ukrainian troops trained abroad and equipped with more than 100 armoured vehicles, including Leopard 2 tanks and Bradley fighting vehicles, had made the push. Those numbers, if you look at other pro-Russian, prominent Russian military bloggers, have changed anywhere from 20 to 100 of the sort of numbers we're working with. So that's, as I'm saying, the fog of war is quite great on here. 
There seems to be two main Ukrainian units involved, the 47th Mechanized Brigade, which we know as one of the Ukrainian brigades put together, trained and equipped by NATO countries. They've received training in Britain, Poland, uh, and Germany. They were one of the first to be equipped with the Bradley. They, they have Leopard 2 tanks and apparently some Slovenian M55 tanks, which are old Soviet-era tanks. And then also the 33rd Mechanized Brigade as well is involved. And they're, they're again, have been sort of armed with Western kit ahead of the long-heralded counteroffensive. So it's likely now, and um, we'll give a nod to Rob Lee here on Twitter. He was saying it's likely now that they've entered the fight because of a change, a rotation in Ukraine's sort of military planning. So it looks like the 9th Operational Corps has come out and the 10th Operational Corps has gone in. And so the 10th Operational Corps controls as many as 30,000 troops, 200 tanks and 700 armoured vehicles. A report by the New York Times citing Ukrainian officials' communications with Washington said the large force that has been sent in there would try to drive through the vast minefields towards the heavily fortified Russian defences surrounding the town of Tokmak. And we mentioned that yesterday, and it's been mentioned a lot. So basically, we've got a push out of Orokiv into Robotny. That's where the first line of defences are, apparently. And then they'll look to, if they can breach through that, that sort of defence, they will look to press on to Tokmak. This is very, very early days. So we've seen involvement from the 47th Mechanised Brigade as of... June time in this, but it seems to be that the Bradleys and other armoured vehicles have come in at a later date, and there was some good video apparently published from the Zaporizhia region as early as the 25th, so it's that Tuesday. But yeah, look, the operation could take sort of between two and three weeks. What we have in response is Russia launched a series of artillery and aerial barrages across the southern front line, mainly directed at Oriki, but it's sort of upwards of Definitely more than 10 settlements around that area have been targeted. And in a statement this morning, Ukraine's general staff said the adversary focuses its main efforts on preventing further advance of Ukrainian troops. So we basically know that this is now Ukraine. While they're being coy about it, they have acknowledged there is some sort of advance going on. So it's, it's one of those things where it's, it's, it's really hard to tell exactly what is going on. Russian sources are now downplaying the large numbers that they put out yesterday. They acknowledge that fighting has been vicious and fierce, and they also acknowledge and they they claim that they've managed to, while not pushing Ukraine back to its original position just south of Orokiv, they've actually managed to push Ukraine back a bit. So it looks like there's some sort of elasticity in this fighting where Ukraine will push forward, Russia will then claw a bit of ground back. But what is clear from, say, reports and sources in and around the ground in Western capitals, that Ukraine hasn't been pushed back to its starting position, so it is making gains. And as we reported in today's paper, Ukraine was not known to have committed its second echelon of reserves. It basically has held out of highly trained and really well Western-equipped reserves back at the rear of the front line, waiting for a moment like this. So if they are suddenly able to pour in thousands of troops and hundreds of bits of equipment, we might start seeing some movement. But let's uh, let's wait and see on that front because it's still, it's still very early days. Um, so there has been some sort of positive mood music out of President Zelensky's office in his uh, overnight address. He said, today our boys had very good results at the front. So again, we don't really know what he's alluding to, but this could be it. Then we'll just we'll move on from there because there are some also on one of the other fronts I discussed yesterday, Staromovsky in Donetsk and Luhansk, that sort of region pushing south. There seems to be, again, some Ukrainian progress. And again, it's early days, but is this Ukraine pushing forward as Russia looks to put more troops into the Crimea area around Kharkiv and Luhansk up, up in the northeast? Potentially, we don't know yet, but... We should see, see some more results from that in the coming days. Some interesting updates on tactics being used by the Russians as Ukraine pushes forward. So Ukrainian forces are said to be being lured into trenches filled with remote-controlled mines. So a tank commander known as Maxim told the BBC, and I quote, when our soldiers get to the trenches, they push a button and it blows up, killing our friends. He said he had seen this tactic being used over the past fortnight and referred to the remote-controlled mines as a new weapon. 
So even though Ukraine is sort of making progress, we don't know what defences Russia have in place. Are are there going to be new weapons, new tactics? Are they going to get more drastic in their tactics as Ukraine push forward potentially? And that's likely, so we'll probably start seeing some new things there. President Zelensky has visited the city of Dnipro in southeastern Ukraine this morning, and he's discussed supplies to the war, the war's front line and air defences. So on Telegram, he wrote, we started the working day in Dnipro. He met with top military commanders, so like General Zeluzhny, and other senior government officials, basically to discuss the situation on the front line. So he, he likely knows that there's some good progress being made by the Ukrainians, and he's gone down close to that front to have discussions with the guys running the military aspect of it. And basically, he will then likely take that information and feed it back to Western capitals, where he will go, we need... X amount more tanks. We need this weapon. We need this. We need more air defence at a ground front line level in order to help sustain our advance. And the, the, what's interesting about the air defence systems is um, being made clear in the British military intelligence update from this morning, which says, as Ukrainian forces continue their major offensive operations in Zaporizhia, one of the single most influential Russian weapon systems in the sector is the KA-52 attack helicopter. Russia has likely lost around 40 of these since the invasion, but the weapon has essentially imposed a heavy cost on Ukraine. What what we do know is Ukraine has been advancing and getting stuck in these minefields, these very dense minefields full of anti-personnel and anti-tank mines. And at that point, when there is enough sort of armour and personnel concentrated in one area as they struggle to move forward because of the danger, Russia will often send up these KA-52 attack helicopters and use them to attack the Ukrainians on the ground. They, they have those, those types of attacks have been attributed for a lot of the losses of Western armour in the first months of the counteroffensive. And then finally, we'll finish on some details coming out around the results of the Russian strikes on port infrastructure. So Russian airstrikes have damaged 26 Ukrainian port infrastructure facilities and five civilian vessels in the last nine days. That's from a statement from Kyiv. It comes after Ukraine's defence ministry warned Russian forces were trying to destroy merchant ships on the Black Sea. As you know, we've spoken about it extensively. Russia has pulled out of the Black Sea Grain Initiative and has basically declared war on any ships in Ukrainian waters in the Black Sea. In an attack in the Edessa region last night, a security guard was killed and a grain terminal damaged, the region's governor has said. So it looks like those attacks will continue. And Zelensky put out a slightly secretive, cryptic message yesterday about needing to manoeuvre various air defences around Ukraine. So you can kind of think that maybe Odessa is going to be the recipient of some of more uh, air defence systems in the coming days and weeks as Russia shifts its tactics from hitting Kyiv to the southern port city. Well, thank you very much, Joe Barnes, there for giving us the lay of the land on this new uh, Ukrainian assault in the south and for the other updates. Uh, Natalia Vasilyeva, do you have anything to add to Joe's uh, reporting and analysis there? And uh, what else have you been looking at this morning? Sure. Uh, actually, just as we were talking, we've received, I would say, like the first major official comment from Russia on the reported Ukrainian counteroffensive. Putin, who is hosting a um, Russia-Africa summit, has apparently just spoken to Russian reporters, and um, he did confirm that hostilities are on a rise in the south, around Zaporizhia. But according to him, Russian troops, as he says, have managed to repel the Ukrainian advances. So this literally just popped up on uh, the Russian wire. So he's confirming that there are some heavy fighting going on. But according to him, quote, the enemy has been unsuccessful. Thanks, Natalia. You mentioned there the uh, Russia-Africa summit. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? What's happening in St. Petersburg? Yeah, that's uh, that's a very important event in uh, several respects. Uh, first off, it doesn't happen these days that international, that foreign leaders come to Moscow at all. Russia has been in uh, de facto international isolation since the war started. And at the same time, the Kremlin has been eager to show that 
things are not quite as bad as they are or as they, as they portrayed to be. So first of uh, Russian media de- definitely went into high gear going around the town explaining how amazing it is that Russia is hosting foreign leaders, that the world is not all about the West that's been help- helping Ukraine and that Russia might have other allies on its side like Africa. Secondly, that meeting is quite important because just a week ago, Russia walked out of the Black Sea grain deal. Obviously, that got African leaders really worried because a lot of African countries rely on um, Ukrainian grain supplies. And there was a lot of talk about famine. You know, we're not talking about uh, minor market fluctuation. This this really is a big deal. And uh, just before the summit... The African Union urged Moscow to reinstate the grain deal to ensure supplies. And uh, Vladimir Putin, in his speech just early this afternoon, made it clear that Russia will not be rejoining the deal. And in fact, he offered to boost supplies to those African countries himself. He named particular countries and even given some numbers saying that Russia would be ready to start supplying grain to six African countries, including Zimbabwe and Mali, and that it would be ready to start those supplies within three to four months. Each country is supposed to get something between 25 and 50 thousand tons of grain each so we'll see what what actually happens on the ground obviously russian airstrikes on ukrainian port as joe has just mentioned you know those strikes are unrelenting they're still happening with that moscow is sending a clear message that you know this is not just about the war anymore or destroy military infrastructure or threatening and, and intimidating people. It's, it's about uh, destroying Ukraine's economic potential, about destroying the actual grain that could be sent to those countries. So Putin made this promise. I mean, we'll see. Uh, we haven't seen a reaction from the Western leaders yet, what it means for them. I think it is important to note that market analysts have said that, yes, Russia might have resources to ramp up exports of its own grain. But those deals, you know, it, it looks like these are very much one-off deals. And obviously, for the market to stabilize, for the prices to, to go down a little bit from, from where they went up after the Russian attacks on, on Odessa, you know, markets would need more reassurance and would need a little bit more than that. But yes, let's see Let's see what happens in St. Petersburg, where Putin is, is hosting African leaders. Let's see what, what they have to say. Thank you, Natalia. Joe, can I come back to you? I mean, only yesterday we were talking about this uh, leaked report in the German press about the uh, Ukrainian counteroffensive and the slightly, uh, well, the less than optimistic tone the report took. And we, we, we spent a lot of time talking about it and analysing it and seeing you know, some of the reaction that came out of Ukraine, out of the UK. We've had some more remarks from James Heapy, the uh, British Armed Forces Minister. Could you talk us through what he said? Yeah, so James Heapy, the UK's Armed Forces Minister, he was um, basically saying that Ukraine's counteroffensive is progressing according to a plan worked out with Britain and the US over the winter. So Mr Heapy basically dismissed any concerns that the operation is stalling. That comes after the leaked German intelligence report. He said that Kiev were being, and I quote this, appropriately cautious in refusing to send large numbers of men and Western-supplied vehicles into these dense Russian minefields. He said the Ukrainian military were holding back enough firepower in reserve to basically release as the breakthrough comes. And so um, he told our colleague, Nikki Smith, in South Korea, because he was visiting the 70th anniversary of the uh, Korean, the armistice of the Korean War. And so he told Nikki in an interview that Ukraine is meeting our expectations at the moment. They are broadly delivering the plan that they worked out with us and the Americans and others over the last winter. This is not a Hollywood movie. There was not going to be a moment when the tank started to roll and the music started to play and a war montage played out. And then at the end of it, a victory by September. So he, like Ben Wallace, like other sort of British officials speaking on the record, British politicians speaking on the record, has basically not gone down the same rabbit hole where we criticise Ukraine's apparent slow progress. So we were speaking to a Western official yesterday in a briefing before I came on the podcast, 
they basically said, look, I don't think it's particularly fair. The Ukrainians will use the equipment as they see best, and it's really hard to run a commentary when you're sat a thousand miles on the front line. I know I said that yesterday, but I think that's very pertinent when we're looking at sort of Western criticism of the counteroffensive. Mr. Heapy kind of went into a little bit more detail. He said, look, Ukraine is acting wisely, and it's keeping most of its brigades equipped with Western kit hidden from sight and out of the fight. And if you speak to former and current British tank commanders and soldiers, they, they would say... Um, if we are seeing the tanks and armoured vehicles in like a war montage, then suddenly that would probably be seen as a failure uh, militarily. So Heapy went on to say it's very easy to lose tens of thousands of lives trying to get through the minefields, and then you have nothing left with which to break through once you're there. So I think the painstaking progress they are making is necessary, and when they get through the obstacle belts, they've still got plenty of combat power ready to break through. Mr. Heapy... Um, in this interview with Nikki, defended the Ukrainian advance, which is good news because it, it seems like there's a lot of impressions out there that Western governments want to see progress with their kits and their donations, basically to show voters that it's working, where it seems the British government have assured Kyiv that that isn't the case with them. They're, they're just happy to contribute to Ukraine's fight and allow Ukraine to use its equipment as it sees fit. Thanks very much, Joe. Uh, Back to Natalia for a couple more stories before we go to our final thoughts. Um, Natalia, you've written up this rather intriguing story about an ex-US Marine uh, who was freed from a Russian prison who's been injured fighting in Ukraine. It's a rather fascinating story. Could you talk to us about Trevor Reed? Yeah, that's definitely a name I did not expect to hear ever in my life or definitely in that context. So as um, some of our listeners might know, uh, there's a number of Americans languishing in Russian jails. Some of them were arrested in recent years, obviously as as pawns in this wider geopolitical games, as Russia has been trying to use them to exchange them for Russians in American custody. So one of those prisoners, his name is Trevor Reed. He's a young American former Marine. He was released in April, uh, which was quite a landmark deal, actually. They had, by that time, there hadn't been any successful prison exchanges between Russia and the US for a very long time. That particular prisoner swap happened, what, two months into the interview? the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So quite a difficult time to um, pull out that. So uh, Trevor Reed was uh, released in exchange for a Russian pilot who was serving a 20-year-long prison sentence for a large-scale, if I might put this way, drug trafficking scheme. So Trevor Reed, after spending three years in Russian prison, finally walked free. He was home. We haven't heard from him since then, luckily. And then we just got some reports yesterday that apparently he found himself in Ukraine where he was injured, apparently stepping on an anti-personnel mine in um, an undisclosed location in Ukraine. And he was promptly evacuated, mad-evacuated to Kyiv and later to Germany where he's undergoing treatment. I mean, it might sound like a trivial story. You know, this has happened to someone we have heard about, you know, we have been covering this case, but the story has potentially really serious implications for other Americans in Russian custody, including our friend and colleague, Street Journal reporter Evan Gershkovich, and uh, Paul Whelan, another former American Marine. Now, both American and Russian officials have confirmed that they are negotiating a prisoner exchange for both of those men. Their families are waiting back home for that. And um, in that uh, context, what happened to Trevor Reed, or rather his uh, extraordinary behavior, might actually have a real-life impact on the future of other jailed Americans. Because there's an understanding that existing talks might run into some trouble since Russian officials might take it as a personal offense that one day, as they see it, they, they, they do this goodwill gesture and they send this former American back home. And next day, they find him on um, the battlefield in Ukraine. To, to confirm that this idea, it was actually quite 
unusual for US diplomats to speak about it on record. And they actually made it quite clear without going all the way and calling Mr. Reed uh, reckless. They just said that, you know, this is against our advice. We have not advised American citizens to be in Ukraine. We definitely are not encouraging anyone to go and fight. They've been clear that traveling in Ukraine is risky. It has a risk of capture death. And definitely this is not something that they would advise. And later that day, US Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, was asked about it directly, whether travel read decision to take up arms against Russia might have any impact on the negotiations to release other Americans in Russian custody. Anthony Blinken claimed that it doesn't and that there have been all sorts of challenges between Russia and the US, but those prison exchanges have been going forward no matter how long it took. And at least publicly, he said that it shouldn't have um, any effect on the ongoing negotiations. Before we move on, Natalia, very quickly, what, what do we know about his motivations for going to, to fight for Ukraine? Yeah, so just, just to, to give you a little bit of background, Trevor Reed was a, a young guy in his late 20s who ended up in Moscow in summer 2019 because he was dating a Russian woman and apparently they were engaged to be married. He went to visit her in Moscow. They went to a party. Apparently he got drunk and his friends tried to help him out and called the police, hoping that police would help to get him to a hospital or a drunk tank. In the end, Trevor Reed found himself arrested and charged with assaulting a police officer and basically wasted three years of his life in Russian custody. We haven't heard from him directly. He hasn't spoken publicly since the day of his prisoner swap. But uh, a source, an unnamed uh, source close to Trevor Reed, told CNN Wednesday that he felt that he had to fight for Ukraine. He had to fight against Russia after he witnessed firsthand the, the, the horrors of the Russian justice system. He himself spent most of his time in a remote prison colony in Mordovia, which is notorious for its harsh conditions. And apparently he felt it was it was his duty to um, sort of fight Russia in this way. That was his revenge, apparently, for, for all the time that he spent in Russian custody. Well, that's fascinating. Thank you, Nisalia. And thank you for placing that story, I think, in, in a sort of broader, wider context in which it's needed. Just one more thing, I think, to talk about before um, we go to our final thoughts. You've also written up a story on Ramzan Kadyrov, Chechen's leader, who's obviously been a fairly important person in the past year and a half, and certainly somebody that's, that's appeared in the Western press quite a lot. What were you writing about, and what does it show us, do you think, about the operation he runs? Yeah, I, I would say that I, I, our listeners are probably more familiar with him in the Ukrainian context in um, leading Chechen troops, some of whom have been derided as TikTok fighters since... We don't really see them often on the battlefield these days, but mostly we see slickly produced videos of them showing how they would be fighting real enemies if the enemies were around. And all of that is being led by Ramzan Kadyrov, and um, he's been in power for a very long time. We, Myself personally, we have covered extrajudicial killings and torture, and he has denied all of those allegations despite overwhelming evidence. And one of the main stories involving Ramzan Kadyrov in recent years was a massive crackdown on gay people in Chechnya in 2017, when uh, at least uh, two people were killed and 100 were tortured and jailed simply for being gay or on suspicion of being gay. There was one person involved in that story and he was rumored to have been killed, but all of those years we didn't have the confirmation. His name is Zelimhan Bakayev. He is actually a pop star, originally Chechen, but uh, he mostly lived in Moscow around the time. And um, in 2017, Bakayev uh, traveled from Moscow to his native Chechnya, to attend his sister's wedding, which is where he disappeared. His uh, relatives uh, went to the police, uh, made public appeals, and uh, the expectation was that, that he was disappeared and killed. And around the time, there was this video that came up on YouTube allegedly showing him in Germany. And the man himself was shown in the video saying that he was alive and well. Even though the interior of the room was unmistakably Russian, there was Russian-made furniture, there was a soft drink, which is native to Chechnya, and uh, basically there was no trace of him. We haven't heard anything about his case since 2017. Ramzan Kadyrov at some point talked about Bakayev, even though nobody apparently prompted him. He just mentioned rumors that 
Chechen officials and maybe even him killed Bakayev. But he claimed that maybe it was the man's family who decided to, quote, deal with him for inappropriate behavior, by which he means being gay. So now, for what, five, six years later, a local NGO that has been helping LGBT people to flee the region has put out a quite extensive investigation. And uh, it quoted sources close to Kadyrov, who basically confirmed that Bakayev was killed explicitly on his orders around the time that when he made public those public comments. And apparently, Kadyrov felt personally insulted and enraged when he discovered that the budding pop star was gay because he personally shook hands with him. And he felt as a personal affront and apparently he ordered the man to be killed and then he was buried in undisclosed location by his family. So again, that just gives us the picture of who this man is and who is the man we keep seeing, not on the front line, in, not on the front lines in Ukraine, but this is the man who's been calling for the destruction of Ukraine and his troops have been involved in various suspected war crimes in Ukraine. So this is where they are coming from. Thank you very much, Natai, for that. Uh, let's move to our final thoughts then, if there are no other updates. Joe Barnes, would you like to go first? Uh, yeah, I just want to speak about levels of expectation. Um, and while we've got this kind of apparently great news, like this apparent push in the South, we shouldn't expect fireworks and instantaneous results. Things um, like this are measured in weeks, potentially months of hard work. So, um if you look at various things that happen on the battlefield in Ukraine and the time scale before there is some sort of repercussion at the front line, for instance, logistical strikes, such as that on the Kerch Bridge that connects occupied Crimea to mainland Russia, or various ammunition stockpiles and dumps, intelligence people will measure the time it takes to have an effect on the actual front line in weeks rather than instantaneously. Another thing that people are speaking about a lot at the moment is the dismissal of Major General Ivan Popov, who was a Russian commander in the southern area of Ukraine. He was sacked about a month ago. And this is what sort of observers and onlookers are potentially citing as one of the reasons Ukraine has been able to make a breakthrough uh, on the front line in the south because of the disorganisation and the chaos caused by bringing in new command structures. So... I would, I would say let's wish the Ukrainians good luck, but let's not expect instantaneous results from them on this southern front line in Orykiv because we, um, we're unlikely to see sort of instantaneous success because it's a lot harder fight than any of us could imagine. Thank you very much, Joe Barnes. Uh, and to finish today, Natalia Vasilyeva. Yeah, I would. Uh, I, I definitely think that we need to see uh, what Putin is doing. Obviously, Russia's suspension of the Black Sea grain deal was one of the biggest stories last week. It was one of the rare, if not the only deal between Russia and Ukraine. And to some, it gave hope that it would be possible to get Vladimir Putin to sit down at the negotiating table somehow. So I think it would be interesting to see if he manages to push those African leaders, if he managed to, to push the buyers of Ukrainian grain to switch sides, to agree to those potential short-term contracts with Russia, if he will be able to assuage those fears or um, try to cover up for that shortage and if eventually you know, look better. We're not even talking about preventing a, a grain crisis, but obviously there was a lot of pressure on Russia to allow those ships to pass last year. So it would be interesting to see if he can come up with any sort of solution while still refusing to go back to the grain deal. And of course, it, it brings to the fore the biggest question is like, how would anyone want to negotiate with Vladimir Putin if he breaks his promise and walks out of a deal that everyone expected him to stay on? Thank you, Joe and Natalia. Your home is our home. So runs an inscription spray-painted inside a house by the Russian military in the Kyiv region. There are thousands of such inscriptions across formerly occupied Ukraine. Some are mere scrawls, others threats, boasts, or even apologies. The Wall Evidence Project, an archive of inscriptions left during the occupation of the territories of Ukraine since February 2022, is collecting these inscriptions and analysing them. 
I spoke to project leader Anastya Oleksi and project editor Roxolana Maka about their work. Here's our conversation. The project started uh, last spring. The idea uh, was born when Ukrainian philosopher Alexander Filonenko and uh, the founder of uh, Mizhvuhom Culture Institution Pavlo Haidai visited Hostomel. And in Hostomel, in the uh, Lyceum, in Hostomel, they found a lot of images left by Russians, especially it was... Uh, Kadyrov uh, soldiers. soldiers, yes. And uh, they uh, thought that it is important to document, to save them, and uh, to somehow think about this, to... Uh, like, to analyze, yes, why, to analyze. Why, why, why do they uh, leave these messages? Because, you know, uh, you know uh, at that time, like, uh, a lot uh, more of Ukrainian ter- territories were occupied, and we didn't really know what was going on then. But we had this feeling that these inscriptions may lead somewhere, may signify something, and uh, it was just a hypothesis of ours that they may leave these inscriptions elsewhere. And we were like totally right. We've gone from like uh, 40, 50, 100 uh, from Kyiv region to 500 and more as for today. So on these inscriptions and th- these messages, some are just one word, some are just symbols, some are extensive like sentences. Could you give us an idea of the inscriptions you're reading. What are the examples that really stand out to you and where did you find them? Where did you see them? Well, uh, there are like uh, really lots of these inscriptions, obviously. Like uh, some of them like are more cruel than others. For example, this is not considered a war crime if you had fun. So a Russian soldier wrote... This is not considered a war crime if you have fun on the side yeah, of the... Yeah, yeah, <laughs> So, and uh, it was in Kharkiv region. And uh, later we found out that this is actually a meme in Russia. So, like, it's not like some particular person came out with that, but it's an actual meme, like, and it's terrifying for us. Also, they uh, have, like, this terrible inscriptions like uh, there are two answers to all questions about Ukraine. Number one, it didn't happen. And number two, they deserve it. Both are correct. So this is also from Kharkiv region. So uh, maybe it's uh, been like the same regiment, the same people. Lots of propaganda about uh, like Russian version of uh, World War II or or, like uh, just inscriptions like USSR and uh, so on. Red Star I, yeah, Red Star, like symbol of Soviet Union and so on. Also, there are like some weirdly haunting and poetic, like in a very dark way stuff. Like this, uh, can, can you read it? We will rise on the ruins of fallen cities and write your names in the book of the dead. So it uh, was in Kharkiv region as well, in Kozacha Lopin. And uh, it was in the uh, basement uh, of the railway station. And uh, there are a lot of uh, inscriptions like that. Let uh, the one who doubts uh, our love of peace be drowned in blood, for our mercy will be merciless. It's like uh, this particular inscription is uh, connected with Wagner Group because they had uh, same inscriptions in their military base in Russia. And also the striking inscriptions for us are inside uh, civilian homes because uh, uh, many of Russian soldiers occupied uh, not only villages but also civilian homes. And uh, they like left uh, lots of destructions. They uh, robbed and looted these houses but also left inscriptions like you, you have a fancy house. You are lucky to live for uh, like, this uh, well. So or, or, for example, like uh, they leave uh, really like ironic inscriptions, like "Thank you for the hospitality." So, like they uh, just broke into someone's house, and then thanks for hospitality. And often these inscriptions are left like on the TV screen, for example, so like uh, you cannot just uh, get rid of it uh, so easily. In your view, why do you think the soldiers might be doing this, leaving these messages? 
It may be several purposes. One of them, we we heard this thought from a sociologist Anna Samchuk. She works with the materials of Russian inscriptions. So she said that they feel the death. And they feel the danger and they are trying to live themselves in this way, to write something on the wall and they like uh, uh, preserve themselves uh, in this life. They are like uh, trying to live uh, their uh, science in this world. So also they just have a lot of time in occupied territories. I think they're a little yeah. bit bored and they starting to reflect some situations. They go through the, the war and they trying to do some reflections on the walls, I think so. so. Well, also, this is like a general feature of the Russian culture, I guess, because uh, like uh, this is a very like general behavior to leave some inscriptions, like uh, to, to mark some territories like uh, Vasa was here. And uh, they have shown it uh, like uh, in the past and also uh, abroad, because, uh, for example, one of the like really interesting parallels is uh, that the Soviet soldiers uh, uh, in 1945 when they came to Berlin they left inscriptions on the wall of Reichstag and uh, these are like inscriptions that, that are preserved till now so you can go and see them in Berlin and also like uh, lots of uh, Russians really leave a similar sort of inscriptions abroad right now because uh, like lots of Russians obviously like left the country but although they left the country because like they are not agree with the regime or they are afraid of uh, being uh, in the army or uh, like uh, other reasons so uh, they uh, still uh, like uh, leave uh, the inscriptions like the like Crimea is ours, uh, or like uh, thank you Wagner, like uh, Bakhmut is ours, and so on. And we we came across several of uh, these inscriptions, like in the U.S., in Paris, uh, in Berlin. So yeah, uh, this is like a general behavior of Russians, and like a, a really interesting anthropological phenomenon. You've been recording hundreds of different inscriptions. Is there anything that sort of surprises you in some of the messages and scrawlings that you've read? I don't know. For me, it's it's how, how the Russian propaganda reflects in these uh, inscriptions. How the Russian pop culture uh, reflects, and uh, how, how uh, we can now find uh, some uh, references from Russian popular culture in uh, these inscriptions. Yeah, it's worth to say that uh, it's uh, not like just a Russian pop culture, but it's very like distinctive culture about like war. They have like lots of content like songs, poetry, and so on about war right now. And uh, one of the cases, so we, we had like a photo of uh, a dozen of different inscriptions on the wall in Kharkiv region. Uh, this is uh, this wall uh, with the, the inscription about war crimes like and fun. And at the beginning of uh, this inscription is like summer and crossbows. And like uh, obviously we, we we like we've seen these inscriptions of war crimes and we like okay this is like worth our attention and this is just random nonsense and then uh, we just randomly came across this song about Wagner with uh, this uh, line so this is just a quote uh, from this song about Wagner and uh, it was like not only about Wagner but uh, there are like deeds uh, in uh, like Africa and all the countries uh, they are based in uh, the past what also surprises me I guess is like this very obvious, I don't know, uh, double thinking, almost in oral way. And they also quoted oral. Like, they quoted Orwell in the inscriptions. Yeah, like, war is peace, you know, this famous quote. <laughs> Freedom is uh, slavery and so on. So, yeah, that's also really ironic, considering Russian propaganda machine. <laughs> that's the war is peace, freedom is slavery, ignorance is strength. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Russian soldiers were writing that on the walls in Ukrainian. Wow. <laughs> so, yeah, and uh, they really can uh, say directly that they are robbing some uh, shops or houses and so on. And then they just 
in the same sentence, they are calling like people Nazis. Uh, one particular instance in Tristanet, Sumo region, it was occupied, and actually the diary of uh, the Russian soldier was found after the liberation. And it's a really interesting piece of information because he like comes with, uh, okay, we came here and people are afraid of us. We are behaving like Nazis. We are robbing, we are killing, and uh, I, I guess we will be tried for that in the future. And then he just uh, goes on with, okay, they are so brainwashed. They are calling us occupiers and uh, glorifying Ukraine. So like uh, they are all Nazis. And these like two thoughts are coexisting in his head, like <laughs> simultaneously. And he doesn't see a problem with that. A diary was found in Kiev region, the same like rhetoric that, uh, yes, we are behaving like Nazis, we are committing crimes. And then like he goes on with, uh, okay, I interrogated 12 people today, all Nazis, including a priest. So <laughs> this is a really interesting uh, dive into their, like this double thinking uh, sort of feature that uh, they really do not assess critically of what they are thinking about this world. A couple of the inscriptions that I've read on your site are actually apologizing for the actions of the, the soldiers in the army. I mean, there's lots to say there. Are these messages common? Did they stand out in their rarity for you? What's your reaction to them? What do you make of them? So we uh, don't know what to say about what is our reaction. They uh, just robbed the house or the school or uh, the, the another building and uh, destroyed it and uh, write uh, they are sorry it uh, it's it's a war or something like this. So I think it's uh, the avoiding of the responsibility. They try to uh, wash themselves uh, in uh, our eyes, in Ukrainian eyes. So they're trying to tell us that uh, they're just uh, soldiers, they uh, have direction and they have to do something. But uh, uh, nobody told them to kill people and then write uh, words that, that they are sorry. So... Yeah, like in, uh, in the, the case of these inscriptions, it's always really important to consider the context where these inscriptions were found because uh, there are some cases with uh, these uh, apologies or really heartfelt messages, like for example, inside the school uh, in the Kyiv region. And yeah, if you read these inscriptions separately, you can think that uh, they are sincerely apologizing and then you see the school around these inscriptions. And uh, it is completely looted, it's destroyed. And then uh, uh, in the yard of the school, there is a grave of the young family shoot with the tank. So, and uh, this is not the only case. And also, uh, lots of these inscriptions are rather ironic than sincere. Mm. And you can uh, read into it because, like, for example, they they can write like, okay, we apologize for the mess, but it's okay, Americans will help clean up, like all this sort of stuff. So yeah, for us, these apologies like, are more uh, the signs of uh, them not being the persons uh, with their own decisions and responsibility. And uh, for us, it's rather about uh, trying to get rid of this responsibility. Is there anything we haven't spoken about that you think would be important for our listeners to hear and understand from your perspective? Uh, for us, important to tell that uh, every person who interested in uh, these materials that uh, want to spread the information about uh, Russian invasion, uh, so they can use these materials in uh, their projects, uh, works, uh, researches, and uh, we just uh, want uh, people to know that uh, they can use uh, the the archive for their projects in any way. So. Yeah, and we are really open for cooperation like with intellectuals, researchers and so on. Like We really want to, it to become something more than an archive, but an instrument to understand this work and uh, to develop some sort of knowledge about what is going on. We're currently working with uh, some of the materials uh, uh, with several researchers, but uh, we are really open for discussion. 
Where can people find your work if they were to look? Uh, on our website, wallevidence.com, there are uh, an archive and also some texts about uh, these inscriptions, like sort of interpretations. And also we have an Instagram where we publish like a sort of context uh, of these inscriptions and uh, also some other content that uh, is important and interesting for us. So you're welcome to join. One final question from me. What happens to these inscriptions? Uh, are you taking pictures of them and then later they're destroyed or painted over or you know, edited out? Are some of them still kept there so people can see them um, and see the evidence? What happens? People trying to wash them away hmm. uh, before they wash these inscriptions. Uh, somebody makes photos and they send us. So we have them. Also, the Ukrainian soldiers sending us some inscriptions they found in liberated territories, but these territories still are very dangerous. But we have the access through the soldiers, Ukrainian, and the Ukrainian soldiers paint these inscriptions after they coming to the liberated village or territory. So, yeah, some inscriptions Inscriptions are still preserved, like in Bucha. I found the inscription like in January uh, this year. So it was like a, a year since the occupation, yeah? Yeah, yeah. And uh, the inscription says that... Castrium. Uh, uh, like uh, that uh, the civilian passage is prohibited and mm-hmm. uh, like... Uh, that they are shooting without yes. warning. So in some cases, uh, the inscriptions are still on the Ukrainian walls after the liberation. But uh, when people finding the inscriptions in their houses, they yeah, of course, like obviously can... trying to wash them away or paint as soon as possible. Yeah, like this. This is kind of content you want to get rid of. Mm. obviously so and uh, the more important is it is for us to like document all these inscriptions because it's uh, like one of the first uh, uh, evidence that uh, disappears after the liberation of the territory because like uh, some uh, mines or ruins they are like uh, longer to repair and uh, the inscriptions like uh, especially if, if it's in a private house for example you, you want to get rid of but like uh, this is uh, such uh, uh, a valuable uh, piece of information for us, you know, because uh, it's not only uh, about ruins; it's also about their attitude towards their deeds, the, their actions, uh, their crimes. So that's why we are running this archive. Well, Anna Cecilia and um, Roxolana, thank you so much for talking to me. Uh, any final thoughts? Maybe we just wanted to. St- Thank you for uh, like for your attention because it's really important uh, for us to spread a message about like uh, what is going on in Ukraine. And, uh, we really hope uh, that uh, our project uh, will help somehow to bring justice to Ukraine, and uh, that uh, every piece of evidence uh, that uh, Russians left on our walls will bring them to justice. It will help us to tell the real story. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine The Latest. We'll sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine Live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine The Latest as soon as it is released do refer to the podcast apps. If you appreciated this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. 
and you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. Ukraine The Latest was today produced by Louisa Wells, and the executive producers were David Knowles and Louisa Wells. <laughs>